Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Man, this is going to be a fun one right here. Let excited. me tell you, excited. Let me tell you a little bit of something about DRW, right? Of course, it's got the hot take of the day. But what I like to share with people about DRW is the first time I went into a business meeting with David in the room. Everybody's all buttoned up, right? I think this was Enterplus days for you, David. Everyone's all buttoned up, people wearing suits. What are you wearing? A brand spanking new Oilers jersey. Nice. For me, I was had just taken over the U.S. operations for Energy Navigator, and I was up meeting with Brenda Kurtz in our Canadian office, and she was trying to give me leads, okay, this and that. She goes, go talk to this guy, David Ransom Wood. His name's too long, so we always just called him DRW. Now, I was too afraid to use the initials, but it comes to find out that's his handle. That's what everybody calls him anyway. So it's a it's a great pleasure to have you on this week. You've, you're, you've certainly made a name for yourself, or at least initials for yourself, all over this industry, David. Give us a little background on uh, how all this got started. Well, guys, um, first of all, appreciate appreciate the the kind intro and. Um, yeah, I, I was I was always kind of a, a unique cat, and for those who've read the book, I sort of tell tell the unabridged version of of how I became what this is. But um, the it, it's a long story. The, the hot take of the day was not meant to be a social media influencing anything. It was, was that just, what January two thousand eighteen or something like no, that. No, it was November two thousand eighteen. We had just sold one energy partners, and and. You know, we can talk about we, we basically anything you guys want to talk about, but we it was the third part of that company that we had fourth part of that company, but the third major part of that company we had sold. And um, I had written this book in 2012, and the intent was obviously to have um, like to get it published. Now, I you know why does anyone want to publish a book? I don't know. It just was something I wrote, and I, I felt like it was the next stage. Now that I'd had sold a company, it seemed like the right time. And I talked to a publisher and she said, do you have a social media following at all? And I was like, uh, what's social media? She's like, you know, Twitter, <laughs> Facebook, or like, you know, she's saying things I haven't, or Slack, or I don't even know. And I said, no, but I have this LinkedIn account that I signed up for in my MBA in 2006. I think I probably have 300 connections. She's like, well, I'll just start posting. And so I started posting to that and, and one random post after another led to a Dear Concho EOG and Pioneer. <laughs> you understand nothing about the industry and supply demand. You're absolutely killing everybody. Please stop your rigs and here's why. Yeah. And some, somebody somebody called my business partner was like, would you please tell Ramson Wood to shut up because nobody cares about <laughs> it. Okay? And so the next day I posted that said, um, Dear all unemployed people on LinkedIn, please immediately change your title to investor because <laughs> neither of you do anything during the day, but one of them sounds better than the rest and makes you look like everyone in New York. <laughs> Hashtag hot take of the day. And that's how it was born. And it just kept growing. Yeah. I remember I was first watching the, I, I saw it go by the first time and it was like some sort of a 30 day challenge. You're going to do a hot take for 30 days in a row. And then it just kept going. Yeah, and and I posted I think for close to 500 days in a row. And then, you know, 
life happens and and at some point it became more important than the book at some point it usurped what was what I was trying to accomplish in my own gas career at the time. And so, you know, I just sort of accepted it. And Jeremy, I know we were at a happy hour downtown Denver before the craziness hit and I was wearing my shoes. I mean, yes. at, at some point it just kind of became a life of its own. And um, I, I coined the phrase or someone coined the phrase, I was an edutainer. So I was, <laughs> I was educating while at the same time entertaining and, and oftentimes offending. So that's, that's how that all came together. It's amazing that the three initials, it's like JFK, MLK, you just say DRW and hell, half the industry knows who you are just just through reputation and the, the hot take of the day. Now, should I be concerned that both of the people you named before DRW, I think, were assassinated? <laughs> well, I mean, you are on a few lists. <laughs> no, I, you, you, I'm on LinkedIn's list right now. Yeah. I was say, one of the things that I do for every one of these podcasts is, you know, we're not on video yet. But I have LinkedIn up so I can kind of go through the bio of who we're talking to and if anything jumps out. And of course, as we record this, DRW is banned from LinkedIn and I can't, can't even pull up the list. You got to have some secret way to get to them. So it's kind of funny to can't pull up the bio anymore. So, I mean, can we talk about the irony of the fact that I was, I mean, again, no one is ever the first, but in oil and gas, there were not a lot of people who had taken a social media presence nor one on LinkedIn. And so like the joke was early on, like, I think I was the only LinkedIn influencer that existed. And now two years later, I'm banned and not even for the things I said about shale, the deer operators beating series, the trying to get on the board of CDEV tongue in cheek, the like <laughs> abuse of the abuse I would dish out to like everyone, but for reposting actual facts about COVID that were deemed unsavory and therefore mm-hmm. flagged as false information. And when I read their list of why I was banned, I mean, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I literally have posted. 700 times on LinkedIn in two years, and the four they came up with were about the most benign things I've ever said. You know, I got to say something just just before we jump in. First of all, your transparency is kick-ass, and I think it's done wonders for this industry for people to say, you know what? I have my own personality, and even though I'm employed by a company, I'm not owned by a company, and guess what? I'm probably going to get laid off just like 30 40% of the oil and gas industry in this country has. But something that I am particularly proud of, and Tim, you should take pride in this too, it took us... We held out for as long as we could. Yeah. When we said we're starting a podcast, who's the first person that's going to come on? Well, DRW. DRW. Yeah, yeah. But it's been like six months or something like that, 25 episodes. So I'm like, man, good for us. We held out for as long as we could. Not like every other podcast. It's like we're starting a podcast. DRW is our first guest. Well, so. I, I, I'm, I'm glad to see what you're doing. I think that you're totally right. I think podcasting is is the future and social media you know, it, it, in one way it elevates, but, but very clearly we work for Microsoft when you post on, on LinkedIn and we work for Facebook when we post on Facebook and we work for Twitter and it's all about eyeballs and keeping things engaged. Podcasts are about identifying with personalities that talk about topics of interest. And so, I, I mean, I love that you guys are six months in and, and it's, it's fun and you get to talk to phenomenal people. So I, I feel very blessed and I'm glad that, that it's going as well as it is for you guys. So congrats. 
Thank you. Yeah, you posted something about your stats. We're not quite putting up those stats yet, but after the the Chuck Yates episode, we got Dan Pickering and you, we're going to see a big spike here, which isn't why we started this in the first place, but I love hearing people say I got value out of listening to your to your pod, whether it's during work or riding on their bike or whatever it is. And it's the same thing with yours, David. I mean, you had David Forsberg on, a buddy of mine who I'm going to have. And it's like, dude, they, just listening to these two guys, like companies would pay good money for the two of you to come in and talk stocks, talk finances, talk oil and gas. And meanwhile, that's a service that you basically offer for free. Well, right. isn't that fascinating though, that the, where, where we are in society is that people would prefer free stuff than, than pay. And so we've built this entire microcosm of social media and, you know, everyone expects to go to cnbc.com if that's where they follow their stocks or CNN or Fox news. And they read everything that journalists create for, for like that they're paid and the business model has transcended to, they only exist because of ads. And ads need clicks, and therefore the partisanship of the new social media model is just so different. And and so, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. I really believe that when you look at guys like Tim Ferriss, who I listen to, I listen to Joe Rogan. I think that the podcasting world is really going to evolve because you know anyone can have can buy a microphone and put content out there, but it's connecting with people mm-hmm. and then figuring out how to monetize that connection in a way that's that's consistent with your brand, I think is is great. The Spit and Chicklets guys, I think, did the best job monetizing because they Agreed. like New Amsterdam vodka. So they made, I mean, I just think that, that, that that's just so, so beauty for that. Yeah, so Bissonette and Whitney, like you're saying, two hockey players, I didn't know their names, but I'm like an OG Barstool guy. That's a Boston company. I remember when it was just a, a paper that, you know, they would hang, and, you know, Prez likes to remind everybody of that that he was out on the street handing out the physical paper, but they hit my radar because Barstool said, Hey, there's something here and then took their, their brand to the next level. But, but going back, David, to something that you said, there's, there's literally no barrier to entry. Like uh, early on when people are like, I can't believe you're doing a podcast. That's amazing. I'm like, well, the microphone costs 30 bucks. And then I just go on the internet to a free site called Zencaster. Anybody can do it, but it's about having that relatability and adding value for free. Yeah, I, I agree. And and but like everything, the business model will evolve. And I think that the Spotify relationship with Joe Rogan is interesting because again, what is a television station? A television station has created, let's use Don Lemon, I think that's his name, or Tucker Carlson, and they've or John Oliver, and they've put them on this box where they speak to people. But unfortunately or fortunately, the world has become so complex and so fast moving with information that you know, if you take a position on five disparate opinions, you're going to isolate half of your audience probably every time you open your mouth. So if you yeah. actually say something unique and novel and present a different view, you every time you say something, you're pissing a big group of people off. But at the same time, you're also going to find this very small group of, you know, 3% of the people who all agree with you. And so then there's this, this trade-off between do we want an echo chamber or do we want personalities and voices guiding conversations that lead people to educate themselves? That's what I try to do with hot take of the day. I don't always do it successful because I know I've pissed a lot of people off and, (laughs) and, um, but you know, I mean, again, it's, it's like, this is, this is a brave new world and we're all trying to figure it out. But I've never, as you said, transparency, I have never managed my brand 
I've never thought about my brand. I say what's on my mind. That is my brand. And I recognize that some people like it and some people don't, but I try and be as accessible and, and transparent as I can be. And hopefully it's provided value for listeners. So I appreciate getting the opportunity to chat with what you guys are trying to do. It's it's cool that you, you get to do that because that's the lowest energy way to have a brand is it's just a reflection. Hey, this is just what I'm talking about. And that's my brand. It's, it, it's easy to just keep doing that. And there's a great book called the long tail. I don't know if you've read that, David. I, I haven't. I haven't. It, it's a, it talks about how the proliferation of the internet has allowed for these niche music, niche podcasts to meet the needs of those 3%. And people can kind of eke out a spot where that information can be, they can get that information where it wouldn't have been, you know, 30 years ago, you have to be appealing to the 50%. You can't go for that niche 3% that agree with you. Right. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. So David, I have an idea of this, but for our listeners that aren't ardent followers of yours, where did you grow up? Are you an Alberta kid and and then went to school up there and made your way down here? What was sort of your path to, uh, you know, life, I guess, everything from growing up through high school, college, and then oil and gas? Well, so, so I was born in New York. Uh, my dad was working for Exxon, which is why I always feel oil and gas has always been in my blood. And my sister was born in 79. I was born in 77. They were there on a one-year assignment in New York that turned into four years. And they just, you know, the the best years, I think, of my parents' life were, were in New York. And mm. I don't think that this will come as a surprise to you guys, but I've always been a bit contrarian. So when I, when I grew up and I moved to Calgary in 1980, I identified more as an American mm. all the way through the Los Angeles Olympics, which I guess was 1984. Yep. But I was seven and I was still deeply, deeply American in Canada and it pissed off all of my little friends. And that's probably where it all started. And then obviously, 84, 85, 86 was the downturn of the energy layoffs. You know, Denver shut down, Midland shut down, Houston, Calgary. My dad was at Dome Petroleum, which was a, a Canadian oil and gas company that ended up going bankrupt. As it turns out, my father-in-law was the CFO of the same company. So my father-in-law and my father worked together. And my mm-hmm. wife and I, when we were seven and eight, would be brought to the office because that's what dads did because there was no internet connectivity. And we, all the kids would run around the floors because we had free access and you would just drink Tang. And so, we, I mean, it was, and it was like the powder Tang too. So my sister and I, and, and there were a whole bunch of other kids and that was like Saturday and Sunday was running around downtown Calgary in the office in oil and gas. And it just was in my blood. So I went to, University of Calgary. We uh, I played squash. Uh, I ended up I I ended up converting to the U.S. national team because I was number eight as an adult in Canada, but I was number two as an adult in the U.S. And so I had a chance to play for the U.S. team in '99 and 2000 in the World Championships in Cairo and the Pan American Games in Winnipeg, of all places. you train your entire life to make the Pan Am games. And then you discover you get to go to like a city in Canada that's, you know, <laughs> 500 miles from where you grew up instead of going to Argentina or Brazil or whatever. But then then I retired from squash and I, I attacked my oil and gas career at Anadarko like I did as though I was a professional athlete. And I said that I 
you know, I told people this in 2001 and two, I was like, I will be the Tiger Woods of oil and gas. I didn't know what that meant it was going to be. And I, and I certainly didn't appreciate that it meant that I was going to get hit in the golf club by someone on Thanksgiving Day. But I, I treated my career like it was a professional sport. And it was all I cared about. It was all I did. It was everything I thought about. And, you know, I worked my ass off until I basically retired from the industry in 2019 last year. Well, congratulations. So you've done what, 65, 66 different podcasts now. And, you know, Jeremy and I are on 25 or 26. I don't know which number this one's going to be. The, I mean, I obviously you get to talk some great people, break some great opinions, do all that. What's been your feeling? You know, what have you gotten back from being able to do that, those podcasts? Oh, I mean, great, great question. And I'll tell you a hundred percent and people may not believe me, but it has 100% made me a better listener. And I wish that I had started a podcast when I was younger. In fact, if I were to redesign the education system and curriculum, not only would I teach people about economics and statistics and math, because I think that those are pretty important, and balancing a financial statement and the importance or not importance of debt, but interviewing people, as you guys know, you learn to listen better and pick out threads of things that they care about. And, and you hear things in a different way when you're just trying to get to when you talked. And I would certainly say in my career, I had a vision as to what it was that I was doing with the teams that I led. And I knew where we were going. And I was always criticized of like, I would say, okay, here's A, here's Z, this is what we're doing. And everyone's like, well, how the hell did you get from there to there? Walk me through the steps. I'm like, just follow me. It'll work out. <laughs> And, and I, if I had been a better listener, I think I could have brought people along better and created less chaos. And so for 100%, I've become a better listener, as ironic as it is, because I do love to talk. But on my podcast, I don't, I, 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 I truly interview. I don't, I mean, I share some opinions, but it's, it's, I'm really trying to dig into the core essence of the, the, the person I'm interviewing. And it's, it's been really, really good. Yeah, I, I like that because I think when people ask me, and and this is me speaking from the heart, it's been building relationships with people, right? Even if it's somebody that I knew really well, our relationship is now stronger from having had 35 to 40 minutes on the podcast, let alone somebody I didn't even really know, like Chuck Yates, who's freaking hilarious. And now we text on a daily basis, right? To me, that that is just magical, right? How else can you develop that bond other than something like this, where we all find sort of a commonality, a common ground, and we just come in here and shoot the shit. Well, and what an interesting time frame too in COVID, because I, you know, I think about this a lot and, and, and what government should and could have done and everything. But at the core, the reason society has still relatively functioned is because we all live in an alternate universe that's on our phone or on, on the digital social media. So we have these imaginary friends that could be bots that we're texting with and what about this and what about this and shooting, you know, but we have this entire life that's, that's totally different than it was when we were kids. And, you know, when, when I was in junior high, you'd talk on the phone with a girl for like, you know, five hours and seriously, yeah. your parents would be like, get off the phone. Whereas now the kids, like you just, you're living in this totally different, way more in, encompassing world than we did. I mean, I drive my son to hockey and on the way back, he's logged into this chat site while playing a video game with all his yep. teammates that he just saw. And like they have this entire presence. So he wasn't even upset during COVID because he's like, well, I still get to see my friends as much as I used to, which I thought was bizarre. Wow, that's amazing. 
and I, I think back to watching my kids run around here during the whole thing and how we had what four people all on videos doing different things while we're all having to work from home, school, work, my work. It was a, it's kind of a fascinating time to see all of us connected at the same time. It was, it's, it's, just kind of crushing, crushing your Wi-Fi that was absolutely not designed to handle <laughs> In no way. that much, that much streaming. So, so DRW, fine, fine Tim, fine. I'm going to jump on you, Jeremy. So I wanted to go back because I started following one of your threads on Hot Take of the Day. You know, for your love affair with Vicky. Yes, okay. I get and, a lot. That's, that's the that the most. I just loved how you were following her and praising her and all that. And then I thought. I wonder what the hell she thinks of this. Does she even know that DRW is out talking high praise of her? And of course, when you started your podcast, I thought, well, Vicky has to be on. And it took what to episode 63 or so before you got her on. What was that like actually having her on the podcast after, you know, the whole everything that went on before that? And I guess you were at Oxy in March as well. I learned that from the podcast. Yeah, I was. Well, so let's talk about the uh, the Vicky thing cuz cuz a, a lot of the I'm going to put this in quotes, criticism and stuff. So in April of 2019, when Oxy came out and competed with Chevron to buy Anadarko, I did a series of posts on on how you know consolidation clearly needed to happen. Oil was 73. Oxy stepped in and took a big swing for the company. Now, two years later, and or a year and a half later, a lot of people criticize Vicky in particular and the board and and a whole bunch of things. You know, the decision don't always end well. So it, to me, it's about the process. And so exactly. for a lot of reasons, I'm very supportive of her and her leadership and the choices that she made, even though some went wrong. But uh, ironically, because of that and a couple of posts I did, I got invited to a dinner in New York in November, which happened to be the first day I was on Bloomberg. And someone said, hey, you know, I got invited to this Financial Times CEO dinner and Vicky is the speaker. I know you like her. Why don't you come and, and come? So I'd been talking to Bloomberg. I said, I'm coming to New York. They said, well, you should come on the show, talk about Saudi Aramco. And then that night I went to this event that Vicky was at and she was standing by herself before she even spoke. I walked straight up to her and nice. I said, you have no idea who I am. I'm David Van Wood. I do this thing called the hot take of the day. I'm a big fan. I'm excited to be here and to meet you. And she she goes, no, I've heard of you. It <laughs> is about the highest compliment as a LinkedIn celebrity that you can get from a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. That Seriously. And, and so then during that evening, I, I asked a, a very difficult question in front of the whole room that she had no idea that I was going to ask. And she answered it really, really, really brilliantly. And so I think for the people who criticize her, I would also say they probably don't – like she's a really smart person. There's a reason that she got to be the top of Oxy. And, for sure. And um, she's just really bright. And so then flash forward to just before the COVID thing, I got – asked by a group of Oxy employees to come and give a speech and talk about the state of the industry. And this was obviously pre-COVID, the lockdown. And I said, well, my only, I'm happy to come. I don't, I don't generally charge, you know, the people pay my flights and, and hotel, but I don't charge like a speaking fee and I don't monetize the hot take of the day because it's an education platform. But I said, yeah. I will come and pay for the flight and pay for the hotel. The criteria is you have to get Vicky to go. <laughs> 
That's awesome. And, and she did. And she listened. And, you know, we, we've built kind of like a reasonable relationship. Like Oxy doesn't pay me anything. I genuinely respect her. And I will, I'm happy to engage with anyone who doesn't. But that's how that came up. And so, you know, we flash forward. It, it finally made sense to get her on the podcast. And, and I thought if you guys listened, I mean, she's a very thoughtful person. And I really like her. And so, you know, there's a lot of CEOs in the world, I think, that are dicks that have also made decisions. There's a lot of oil and gas CEOs that made transactions at exactly the same time. Chevron mm-hmm. also tried to buy Anadarko. They paid yep. 15% more in equity, but a lot of Anadarko's value was in debt. So, like, she gets a, a really hard time, and I'm not a shill for her, and Oxy doesn't pay me a dollar. I respect her, and I'm happy to go to bat for people I respect, and anyone who's ever worked for me knows that I fight for people. And she's one of the people I like. So a lot to sort through right there. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say kind of three points that I think are somewhat salient. First of all, this is a male-dominated industry. And I think that there's a component. We don't usually get controversial, but I don't care. I think there's a component of jealousy. I'll be completely honest with you. I think that there's a jealousy factor in play for some of the men in this industry. And it's way easier to pile on a woman. I'll just throw that out there. She's in a a very rare position for the type of company that she runs. The second is she absolutely earned her role. I'm no shill for Oxy either. In fact, I've never done a business deal with them and that frustrates me. But she ran the California asset for that company before it was CRC for like 30 years. And if, if you do that and you're going to those, you know, the, the Bakersfields and the Tafts and the Sacramento basins, you've spent some real time in the patch. And the third and final point is not to make you jealous, David. I actually sat down and had dinner with her in 2013. So here I am, this, this young guy. And Tim and I were both in uh, Newport, California at the NGO conference. And someone's saying, man, of all the people here, you need to sit down with, with Vicky. And she granted me the opportunity to sit down with her at dinner. Uh, we bonded over the fact that we're both somewhat front runners. I'm a Patriots fan. She went to Alabama. That's all good. Um, but, but what I really appreciated about her was, you know, she could tell that I was passionate. And, and she said, you know what? I like your passion and I can tell that you care about what you do. So I'll give you the opportunity to meet with whoever you need to meet with here. And she backed it up. I sent her an email and she passed it along. So she's always had my respect because of that, but just wanted to put a few of those points out there on my opinion as to why she's been so vilified. Oh, I love that. And and you, you raised the football example, you know, like, you know, Nick Saban might be the greatest coach in college football, but it's also because they have the best recruiting. There are a lot of phenomenal coaches like, and, and players, Wayne Gretzky went to some horrible hockey teams and wasn't able to win a championship. And so like to, to, to hold the fact that St. Louis blues and Los Angeles Kings and you know, the New York Rangers didn't win a Stanley Cup while the greatest hockey player of all time was on their team. Doesn't mean he wasn't the greatest hockey player of all time. And and very clearly, every single person in oil and gas walked into a buzzsaw because as you guys know, since the beginning of the hot take of the day, what is the only thing I talked about for the first year? Consolidate, merge, stop drilling, stop growing production and pay down your debt. And had they done any of those things, the companies that did would be in a healthier position. But all the way until February, EOG, SM, Pioneer, uh, Chevron, Exxon, were all talking about growing oil volumes while the mm-hmm. rest of the world was saying, well, this COVID thing is kind of big and we're going to not have guidance. And US oil companies were like, oh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to grow our oil production. So, you know, she cut the dividend sooner than anyone else. She stopped, she cut the capital sooner than anybody else. And 
she made better decisions in light of the information. So anyway, yeah, 100% agree, Jeremy, and great points. I mean, you said a whole bunch of stuff right there, but as a Bruins fan, I kind of want to end this podcast now that you said St. Louis Blues. Like, it, it's been a year, but it still hurts. Oh, I think they finally won the cup. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're a minute 27 here, and we finally got to a Boston sports reference. Well, oh, it's the, <laughs> I said I said the Patriots before too. Well, but he, you know, he went he went Blues, and you have to take it back to to New England because it still hurts, Tim. It's an open wound. It hasn't been that long. Okay. So, so DRW, we've been we've had uh, one guest appear twice on this show, and that's uh, Marsha Vigil, who I know you know very well. Yeah. We asked her. We said, "All right, what's your best uh, scramble foursome?" Uh, in you know oil and gas industry and of course your name came up and she I guess she threw a couple other names up but uh, you know obviously you're you're damn near a scratch golfer or better as, I'm a plus plus three now I, I nice. mean people people are gonna be a little jealous or maybe so so far I looked at my gin card this year I have 130 rounds so far this year oh my god wow. and so so the amazing thing and and for golfers the amazing thing is I have learned so much about the game of golf this year that I didn't know. And it makes me think about like professional athletes, people who do well in career, Black Lives Matter, et cetera. Mentorship by people who have been successful help accelerate so much faster than finding out yourself. And I'm surrounded by a whole bunch of great golfers. But like when you look at kids whose dads are golfers and like legit golfers, they learn all the lessons that the person has to learn themselves, just like a mentor. And so this year, I finally learned all the things that I used to not do correctly. And there's like two or three I could summarize. I won't, but I could. And that brought me from a zero to now a plus three. And so I'm legitimately pissed off when I shoot even par, whereas before I'd be really excited when I shot even par. Wow. Where do you like to play out here? What are some of your favorite courses in Colorado? So I'm a member of Meridian, which for those who are looking, it's the best golf club, in my opinion, in Colorado. Wow. And it's pure golf. There's, you know, I think someone has a parody account to me on Twitter, which is funny because they have a picture. Uh, They have a Cherry Hills reference. And like Cherry Hills is the last course that would A, accept me and B, that I would be a member of. But Meridian, Meridian is just a phenomenal golf course. And so I play there all the time. And then just wherever I get to meet interesting people or play interesting. I love Colorado Golf Club. If I'm going to say what the best golf course is in Colorado, I think it's that one. And, and an accessible one for everyone is uh, TPC Colorado is actually better than I thought. Um, it's pretty good. Hmm. I haven't played at any of those places, but I mean, the, the part of the beauty of Colorado, I mean, beauty having double meaning here is even the public courses, you've got a mountain view in the background. Like y- you can play a $40 round and be out there for four and a half hours and be staring at the mountains the entire time on a 77 degree day with your friends. Freaking awesome. And be yeah, that's not possible in Houston. wait so i wanted to go back towards the the mentor comment you made because i I, that was one thing i picked out of the the discussion with vicky was she two or three times referred back to her early mentorship the people that helped her advance early in oxy and you know saw something in her and actually mentored her up to get those first management positions so it was an interesting Essentially, that you brought up mentorship right after we talked about Vicky, because I thought that was uh, something that I took out of that interview you had with her. Yeah, no, no one gets there alone, and 
you know, I always said that you have to hitch your wagon to somebody moving up the organization for you to successfully do it. And what I learned when I was at Anadarko before I left in 2009 was I had had champions at Anadarko from when I started in 2000 until the Kerr McGee acquisition. Mm. And then slowly in 2006, it was really Kerr McGee that took over Anadarko, not vice versa. And so all of the senior leadership that I knew in Canada, there were only three of us that got transferred to the US out of 500. And so a big portion of my very direct mentors were all you know, no longer with the company. And those that I did know in the US were slowly but surely being eliminated from the organization as the layoffs occurred were primarily given to Anadarko people unless you were really young. And so I lost a huge mentorship and, and, and proponent of me. And so in 2009, I didn't have a lot of advocates left at, at Anadarko. I think people who worked with me then always remembered me as smart, but controversial pushed the envelope, you know, didn't play politics. And, and I didn't have an older person that was like, you shouldn't do this or should do this. Yeah. I'm sure I would have listened, but that, that I, so to me, mentorship is the single key. And, and when we look at black lives matter and, and, and I'll be controversial on this, I'll, like it's a meritocracy. And <laughs> when you're exposed to people who went to college, made money, had success, like, so if we want to talk about the lack of opportunity, 100%, but there's a whole bunch of things that all start with education and mentorship that like my parents said they would not come to my university graduation for engineering because they told me always that I needed to make a postgraduate degree and nice. that they would come and see my postgraduate graduation. Until then, it was totally irrelevant to them. So that was the mentorship I had was like, it was never good enough. And, and I think people need that. And then people need to take accountability for it, but mentors can really help. Yeah. And, you know, I know Colin McClellan's probably listening to this and and when he first started out kind of making his own hot takes of the day and, and getting everyone to pay attention, one of the things that he was anti because it didn't necessarily support his path was education. Now he's doing like Harvard business school classes and stuff like that online. But, but I'll tell you, for me, a kid who grew up in New Hampshire, uh, I was always a hard worker. I was one of the top students in my high school class, honors classes. I went to Brandeis and I immediately knew I was way toward the bottom. So I had a choice. I could transfer out, maybe go to the University of New Hampshire or uh, you know, a school that wouldn't have challenged me as much, or I could bust my ass and work harder. And interestingly, I think the level of the students that were at Brandeis for the most part are, are a higher caliber than what you'll see for the most part once you get out into the real world. So for me, of course, I have privilege and, and I had the ability to be a part of that meritocracy, but that was huge. Because you got to see, you might think you're good where you were, but now you get to see how people are who are really good and that are going to go to NYU Law and get that big job right away because they have work ethic also. So how can I keep up? I need to at least work as hard as them, if not outwork them, to have any chance. Yeah, totally. Yeah, hang out with people that are smarter than you. That was my <laughs> that was my plan at uh, when I was in schools, I just got a bunch of people that are smarter than me and they just, they, they pulled me up and I like to think I added something to their lives as well. You de- I mean, you definitely do for mine. I, I didn't know anyone who knew as much about reservoir engineering that could break it down in such a simple way, Tim, when I started working for you. I mean, when it comes to sales, forget it. You don't know what you're doing. Anyways, <laughs> so David, before we, true, jump by here, the way. <laughs> before we jump here, well, fortunately, you know, good people. So before we jump, David, I want to bring up energy tech 
both Tim and I are, are in that world. And what we're seeing here, and I have to say this almost every episode, is the exact opposite of what is happening in the oil and gas operator world. It's not layoffs. For some of the companies, it is. But the demand for my company services, for OVS-type products, for mobility, for, for AI, uh, operating by exception, is extremely powerful right now. I'm curious from your perspective, and I know you haven't worked at an operator in over a year, what were some of your favorite technologies to bring into organizations? And what value did you see enterprise-wide when you brought them in? Well, there's this program called Excel that's really, really good. Oh, yeah, yeah. I heard, heard, heard of that um, one. Yeah. Did yeah. that replace Lotus 1, 2, 3? Yeah, it, it is. So, you know, energy tech, I think, is really interesting because, you know, at the core, and I tell this story about One Energy, the reason we were successful was because I, I personally hand declined every oil horizontal well in the United States from every major basin that existed. And it took you know, over the course of our of our life as a company, it took about two years. And because I had done that by hand, I knew what was good technically, what was bad technically, and what was realistic based on prop and lateral length and economics, et cetera. Because I had seen it and I'd done it for 20 years. And so when we had success, we bought 12,000 acres, and I hope you're sitting down, as close to the best wells I had ever seen in the United States as possible. And we bought as much of that land as was available. And then we sold it when people realized it was as good as we knew that it was. So I don't mean to dumb down energy tech, but energy tech is about, you need smart people who are decision makers to be able to use it reliably. Now, what I wish was if I hadn't had the hand decline all of those wells and I could have had that artificial intelligence faster, and I know there's companies that do that, then could we have got there faster? Yeah, but then you have to have opportunity meets timing. And I needed to recognize what it was that I saw. And so for us, I, I credit the fact that that was our technical. And then we had someone who was the Tiger Woods of, of um, financial modeling, engineering, in entries, exits, private equity on the team as well. And you took two really good talents. So to me, everything that oil and gas is going to do is about uh, accelerating the decision-making process using real data, not hope, and then being able to have smart people interpret it. And unfortunately, most management teams have proven for the last five years that they don't, they don't belong there and they're only there to pull a salary. So that's the reason I think we haven't seen the adoption and it's going to be a two to three year cycle before all those, those teams lose their jobs and then new people can come in and make faster, better decisions to make profitability possible. Yeah. You know, I, I like that. You, you didn't name a single product besides Excel. Very diplomatic of you there, David, but I'll accept it on, the, on this podcast. But, but it does goes right back to what we, the talk, sh the show with uh, Kevin Decker, people before process and technology. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. People no, that's hundred. I mean, I, people, 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 and that's what COVID misses is that it's all you can go home, you can work from home, you can be in your house, you can drop off your kids. No, good people. Look at what LeBron has done to the Lakers. LeBron yeah. went to the Lakers, and a horrible basketball team became they're going to win the NBA championship. Yep, they are. Uh, yeah. yeah, it is all about people. People could study LeBron's work habits and exercise routines and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it is the person and the people that make the difference. And, and they have to be empowered by tools that make them better. 
Love it. We're going to chop it there, David. You have a fantastic weekend, my man, and really appreciate you coming on our pod today. Thanks for having me, guys. Enjoy. Thanks, David.